Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files. This is Tom Donaldson along with Coco Konsky. We've got a special guest, uh, Kevin Roach. Uh, more in due moments. Uh, what we're going to talk about, I'm the chairman of America's PAC, uh, which is a political super PAC, uh, steep and evil, as I am now sitting in the middle of Georgia, running ads, trying to save that election for the good guys. Also, I am the... I am also the... Uh, Chairman of America's Majority Foundation. I should say I'm the Project Director of Research Associate of America's Majority Foundation and the author of eight great books, none of which are bestsellers, but they all should be. And Coco will tell us all about herself. Go ahead. I, I guess I will. Um, hey, what's up? My name's Coco, but you guys probably already know that. I'm a writer. I work in, you know, beautiful city of Burbank, California, and um, I am here now. Yeah, yeah. All right. And, I don't know uh, get to be, but when I am, I am. Yeah. yeah, real quick question before we bring our two guests, Kevin Roach, and we got Mark Morano, who's also joining us as well. Uh, you, uh, you went to a virtual, a virtual what, film festival? Yes. Okay. So what it was, it was a networking of industry people such as myself, and it was super, super unique. Um, A very good friend of mine was in charge of the festival. And so what it was is you went on the site, you downloaded kind of like the software or whatever, took like five seconds, and you created yourself an avatar. And it was like being in The Sims, if you've ever played that game. It was super weird, but super cool. So we all, it, it, they, they have this whole, it was kind of like being in a video game, but you're connecting with people and you attended seminars. Um, I got to talk to um, Sherry Belafonte, uh, Harry Belafonte's daughter, um, who she was one of the speakers. There was... Uh, so many people, so many industry people, and um, it was really cool because the way you connected with them was you had your mic on, and if you got into someone's group or you, you met another avatar, you literally could talk to them directly without pressing any buttons. So it, it, was, it was really neat. It was, uh, it was really fun. And I think they were wor- worried because of COVID. It was called the Omni uh, Film Festival. And I think at first they were kind of worried that, you know, well, how is this going to work? Like, you know, there were over a thousand people there basically connecting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I met some really cool people from MTV, from Viacom, um, 105.9 hip hop. Um, And it was, uh, it was a really crazy experience. I was going to say, cause like you would go into these little halls and they each, each one had like a seminar for directing um, acting, um, you know, photography, mm. 
And so you would you would sit yourself down in like a seat, and it it was basically like a video game. And so, you know, with COVID around, like obviously we're not having film festivals or anything. So I thought this was like such a cool thing to do because they don't know what you look like. That was the funny part. My avatar looked like the Matrix. I literally looked like Carrie Ann Moss. So my avatar was was kind of insane. There were people like you know you don't know really what they look like. And you're just communicating with them. And I met so many great people there yesterday, and it, it was really fun. I think this could oh. be something that they're going to do in the future. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I thought yeah. it was really interesting. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like, like I say, it sounds pretty good because uh, I know we're going to, like I say, we'll have to follow up on this sometime next week. We got two really good guests on tonight. Um, and what the, this is kind of part of a series I started last week with uh, Wilf O'Reilly, and I'm going to get kind of a give everybody kind of like a little bit of a background here. Is like I say, I work for a foundation, I and I've overseen something like 40 research projects, and and I've been kind of concerned what I call the politicalization of science, where we're almost seeing you know science being politicized as opposed to and whether or not we're witnessing censorship of scientific thoughts and ideas and whether or not we actually, and, and it does have consequences. You know, you and I've had this debates on the lockdown and, but I do think that let's say if you're going to base policies, you better make sure you get the science, right? The data, right? And, uh, and so what I'm going to do here, first of all, I'm going to introduce our two guests and I'm going to let them talk about themselves. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Kevin Roach. Kevin, uh, once you got you, you got the blog, the health skeptic, but you're more than just that. So, kind of talk about your background. Yeah, um, I um, I live in Minnesota. I'm uh, pretty old. I've worked in healthcare for um, over 45 years, in one way or another. At one point, I was um, general counsel of United Health Group, which is the largest healthcare company in the United States. And then I, at the same company, founded and ran a division that uh, did healthcare analytics and data and research. Uh, I've been a healthcare investor um, and a consultant, and I've written a blog on healthcare policy and research for over 15 years. And um, uh, in the course of the epidemic this spring, I have kind of turned the uh, blog into a focus on coronavirus because primarily because of some of my concerns about the uh, government responses um, and what the effects of those might be. Okay, okay uh, Mark, Marina, what you kind of, I know, like I say, you've been around uh, dealing with the climate change debate for like, what, about two decades now? Yes, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, so, uh, go, go ahead. Briefly, tell us. Yeah, my name is Mark Morano. I was a former U.S. Senate Environment and Public Works Committee um, communications director and speechwriter, and I did the 400 dissenting scientists report back in the Senate. And I founded Climate Depot 11 years ago. And I've been fighting the global warming battle, uh, all the nonsense coming from Al Gore, the United Nations. I have a book out, The Political yeah, okay. Correct Guide to Climate Change, and a movie, Climate Hustle 1, which was 2016, and Climate Hustle 2, which just came out and is actually available at climatehustle2.com. It's Kevin Sorbo is doing his narration, and I'm the reporter in it, and we cover 
the entire aspect of global warming. I've gone to all the UN conferences. We interview UN officials, and we go through. And you find out it's an agenda. It's not about controlling the climate. It's about controlling you. And I'll just say that COVID, uh, as, as we just heard uh, from Kevin, is not about controlling a virus. It's about controlling us. So all they've done is switch from using the climate as an example to now COVID, and they're achieving everything they ever dreamed of with their climate agenda, they're achieving it and succeeding with the COVID uh, lockdowns and mandates. All right, I'll tell you, we'll talk yeah, all so my life from COVID. So, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't put up with people who don't wear masks. You know, if, if you can't follow the law, if you can't follow the rules, then you should stay your ass home. That's how I truly feel, especially since I've lost, right. like, nine people that I personally know to COVID. Right, well, I never wear masks. Uh, I mean, I very rarely wear a mask, and, you know, there's no – you may as well have a rabbit's foot in your pocket if that's your attitude, and everyone has a right to go out. And, actually, all you have to do is invoke a health okay. exemption. Okay, then don't get COVID. Go get COVID. If you want to go out, go get COVID. You that's won't cool. get COVID. Exactly. That's got nothing to do with it. Yeah, hold on. Okay, hold on, so, okay, hold on a second. Right, yeah, right. yeah, hold on just a so Hold yeah. on that thought right there. Uh, this is Tom Donaldson, Kokokonsky, with Mark and Kevin Roach. Uh, we'll – be right back after these uh, messages. This is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called the philosopher of current events, an independent, open-minded conservative with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Yeah, this is Tom Donaldson back once again with the uh, Donaldson Files and uh, with Coco Konsky, uh, Mark Morano, and Kevin Roach. Kevin, I'm going to start with you because uh, in Minnesota, because uh, one of the problems I have and what I want the both of you to do is talk about the different models that people have used. And I know in Minnesota, in Minnesota in, and there's certainly been questions dealing with those models, the efficacy. And, and I know Minnesota had their own models. So kind of talk about the Minnesota models and weaknesses of, those, of that particular model. Yeah, so, um, you know, I have been familiar with uh, the use of models in healthcare uh, for a long time. The division I ran um, actually built a lot of models in, in healthcare. Most of the models we're building are based on uh, very large databases of actual data, um, claims data typically about the services people receive, who delivers those services, um, and what the outcomes are. So you're typically probing for relationships based on large data sets that already exist. Um, one of the things I think that's been a real problem with the uh, epidemic modeling is people don't have that past data. And it's very hard to build a good model or even a schematic of a good model if you don't have data, if you don't have some basic sense of the relationships. And that problem was exacerbated here by the fact that the only data people actually did have came from China and um, was uh, just very unreliable, and people have now recognized that. So we got models around the globe that projected um, numbers of deaths and infection fatality rates that 
were sky high and that frankly contributed to kind of the hysteria and the stampeding into lockdowns and other government actions. And we certainly saw that in Minnesota. We had a model here that projected, uh, still projects, they've, I think, been too embarrassed to update it, but um, it projected that by late July, 50,000 people would have died in Minnesota, and that was under the lockdown scenario, telling people to stay at home, keeping schools and businesses closed. Um, And it projected that the epidemic would basically be over here because 90% of Minnesotans would have been infected by early September. Um, That model, as I said, was just an embarrassment, but it was used by the governor uh, to justify basically completely shutting down the state, closing the schools, and um, putting a lot of people out of work, um, causing kids to miss uh, their educational needs, causing social disruption, causing healthcare disruptions. So just a um, kind of a classic example of using a really bad model to justify policy that um, that had a lot of uh, very negative consequences for people. Okay, let me follow up there because I want to now get Coco because obviously you know I don't to me I, I you know when I look at the numbers I would say from a virus from a affects the fatality rate point of view, you can make the argument that this was similar to the 1957-1968 pandemic and slightly, you know, and certainly double the more, double the, let's say, the flu of the past decade. But you're still looking at two per 1,000. But you also have, now, and maybe it's a question I'm going to throw back to you, because I know Coco, you know, like I say, she's lost part people on this and, and, and I like to have her you know comment after after you but on a policy basis if somebody says to you here's a, that let's say the you know let's say two per thousand how do you what are your policies to save that extra one per thousand without total disruption in society especially with a virus that quite frankly is going to kill the elderly and those with immunocompromised uh, state more so than, let's say, the younger population. You know, what is that policy should be versus what we ended up in, like in Minnesota? You know, what does the data tell you? Let's put it. Up. Well, I I think you have to think about what your prioritizations are, and to me, the prioritization should be one of the very highest priorities should be the welfare of children, and I don't think there's any question that um, you know, trying to to call something distance learning is just engaging in a euphemism. It's pretty clear that except for very wealthy children whose families can afford tutors and um, all kinds of other uh, methods of trying to make up for not being in school, that it's just been, especially for low-income and minority children, a real disaster. So uh, the first priority, I think, should be we should have just kept um, schools open. And then, as you said, it's pretty apparent. Um, 99% of people, this is not not even not a serious illness. It's not something they would even be aware that they were, um, quote, infected. Um, so the fortunate thing is that it's a relatively small group of people, and it's typically the frail, elderly, um, typically people who are in a health condition that anything is going to push them over the edge. 
These are the people who would typically die of flu during flu season or um, any other uh, kind of health event is probably going to push them over the edge. Uh, and while it's easy to say, well, then just isolate them and protect them, to the extent we've done that, it has killed very large numbers of them, not from coronavirus, um, but from isolation and a diagnosis that euphemistically is referred to as failure to thrive. We've got at least 30,000 nationally excess dementia deaths that are caused directly by isolating these people. So I think the policy in regard to those people has to be a little more sophisticated and balance their right and desire to, in the last few months of their lives, see the family and friends that are important to them against the risk that they they may um, uh, contract uh, coronavirus. And I, I frankly think that's a decision that should be left up to those elderly people. And what I hear from them, they are far more concerned about being able to maintain some kind of contact with other people than they are about uh, getting sick with with coronavirus. Um, because these people typically don't have much uh, social contact to begin with. Yeah. So um, yeah, hold, yeah, hold on, yeah, hold on, Decker. Okay, Coco, because I've made the same point on the show, and you and I have had a disagreement, and I know. You know what? I, I don't is, even know if I want to talk right now. Seriously, um, you know what? I've lost like two, not two people. No. I I know right now two people who have it. I lost a grandmother, uh, didn't get to attend her funeral, you know, um, yeah. I've had it, you know, it's not some denying, like, you know, I mean, I don't understand how hard it is to wear a mask. Like I seriously do not. I, it, it really, really just makes me laugh at these deniers of COVID and like how it's, Oh, well, isolation is worse for you. And no, 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 it's not. Because if you've been through it, if you've had it and talking about how like, Oh, well, it's only the elderly. No, it's not. I, I have a friend who got COVID. His 10-year-old daughter is in the hospital, and she has no pre-existing conditions. It affects everybody. It's not just if you're asthmatic. It's not, it, it affects everybody. Yeah, well, here's the problem. Like, yeah, but this is a point that Kevin made, and it's a point I made. You know, and, and, and I'm going to put it this way. You know, what do you tell that Is this. I mean, statistically speaking, you know, young people under the age of 20 are more likely, and this is from the CDC, die from the flu than they are to die from COVID. The reverse of that, if you're a senior citizen, you're more likely to die of COVID. It's not that anybody's minimizing it tonight. It's the fact, okay, do you shut down? How much of the economy are you willing to shut down? I mean, just wear a you know, it's fine. I, you know, I wear a mask. You know, when, you know, I wear a mask outside, you know, when I'm in crowded areas. But I guess my question would be, and this is the question we've already had. This is a question where, you know, the pilot, the, the, you know, what you have to have. You know, what is going to do less damage to the overall society versus not? And 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 I guess my question it's always been to what extent? Because this is, I mean, basically the bottom line is we are killing more people uh, by the lockdown. Then we are saving lives. You know how much is that one to two per that you do? That's always been the question, and I don't think that that's an illegitimate question to ask. You know, if the statistics would state that a person ten years old, regard, you know, even if let's say the patient you're talking about in the hospital 
that's a rarity. But you saw that with you could see that exactly with the flu. And that's been the question all along that I've asked. And I'll let you I'll let you make your comment there. Um me? Yeah, I you know No, I, no, no, I I'm gonna you know, Oh. Go ahead, Kevin. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I, you know, the question you posed is exactly the one when you talk about government responses. You know, government is supposed to do what provides the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Um, we have a lot of suicides among children as young as eight years old um, that are being caused and occurring right now. Personally, I would trade a thousand 85-year-olds with six months of life left for one of those children. So people who, you know, want to use anecdote and emotion instead of looking at the actual statistics and data and seeing what's happening and what's going on and who think that only what happens to people who happen to have coronavirus matters and not what's happening to everybody else, I, I simply do not understand that. And frankly, I don't wish to discuss or argue with people who aren't interested in kind of looking at the big picture, looking at the actual data, looking at the actual consequences, and thinking about what's a really rational policy. Okay. All right. Um Okay, I'm going to switch now over to okay, Mark on to the modeling dealing with climate change because uh, we've you know what you know with somebody you know you know from your perspective you've looked at these models you know what's the scientific valid valid how valid are they invalid what's their strengths what's their weaknesses if somebody said to you the models we're going to be using that's going to be the premise of the Green New Deal. What's the tweet? Why would you uh, go ahead? Well, a model is a useful tool in doing all sorts of things, whether it's epidemiology or climate uh, or statistics of any kind. The problem is that in our modern science, because of you know the science must be bent in order to follow the prescribed policy, you know, the, the public policy. In other words, whatever the politicians decide, they need to conjure up that science. So what they've done with climate models is when current reality fails to alarm and when current data is not alarming, and I'm talking about sea levels, hurricanes, floods, hurricanes, droughts, tornadoes, wildfires, they make scarier and scarier predictions of the future. And so they use the models as a misdirection, and it's a way to be a tool of public policy. The classic example is uh, polar bears. In Al Gore's first film, he featured the polar bear. He just showed it on the ice, and it was all worried, and it was this emotional thing, and school kids got involved, saved the polar bears, and people, oh, the poor polar bear. Then people started looking a little closer, and the polar bears paid no attention to the movie, by the way, because they ended up hitting at or near historic population highs. Their numbers were fivefold higher than 30, 40 years ago, mostly due to a ban on hunting. By all accounts in the Arctic, Polar bears were not going extinct. They were at record numbers. So Al Gore doesn't mention them in his sequel. They're not even mentioned in his book or movie. Just they're eliminated because there's so many polar bears now. That's, but, but if you listen to the mainstream media, they can now 
cite a scientist who will say it's worse than we thought for polar bears. And you say, well, how is it worse than we thought? Well, because our predictions of the year 2080 for polar bears is now much worse than it was just five years ago. So when current reality fails to alarm, use a scary model and projection to make it, you know, to make it very scary and get your point across. And it's a misdirection. It's like a card game. Now, when it comes to this regular climate. Let me ask a quick question here. Okay. You you know, basically, you know, when we look at these models, because my biggest concern has always been is that the worst, the worst case scenario, I guess my question was, we've dealt with the worst case scenario now for like six decades or five decades or four. I mean, I've lived through, you know, six end of the world scenarios. And my question that I'm going to ask both of you on the other side of this is when scientists get it consistently wrong, you know, or let's say government science gets consistently wrong, what is the price they have to pay for getting it wrong? Uh, and we'll come right back. This is Tom Donaldson, uh, Coco Konsky with Mark Marino and Kevin Roach. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Okay. Okay, let's go back. Okay, Mark, here's the, let me give you my question. Here's the problem I have. Okay, in Minnesota, you had scenarios where you were talking 75, 50,000 dead. We're nowhere near near that. We're like 100-fold a lot. And yet, these, you know, you know, so did these individuals who do this marketing of this model, what price did they have to pay? Did they get fired? Are they still being used? You know, uh, it, it seems to me there's a price that if, if I was off by a factor of 100 or even a factor of 5 or 10, I wouldn't have a job. And I've, I got a feeling, Kevin, you wouldn't either. So I guess the question I'll ask most of you is what's the price one has to pay if you're off by that factor? Well, there is no point. For a government scientist, they usually get awards and tenure, and they get hired in academia. They get faded by the media. They're going to U.N. conferences. It doesn't really matter if you're wrong in the right direction. Do you understand what I just said there? If you're wrong in the right direction, meaning the politically prescribed direction. In other words, if you predict too many polar bear deaths, fine. But if you dare say polar bears are doing fine and they're not, they're not threatened, then you get uninvited to scientific conferences. And I actually have that case documented. And same thing's happening in COVID. A a Nobel Prize winning uh, Stanford chemist is uninvited from conferences because he doesn't support lockdowns. And it wasn't even a a conference on COVID. He's not allowed to participate because he's not following the politically prescribed uh, policies that you have to do. So the answer to your question is there's no punishment, only reward if you're wrong if you favor the public policy position, i.e. governments want to solve the climate crisis. So as long as you gin up fear about it, you're doing the best science you can, regardless of whether it's accurate, regardless of whether it's wrong. Okay, Kevin, your thoughts. Uh, Well, there was absolutely, other than a little bit of public ridicule, and um, the media here, as in most places, 
uh, tends to not report on things that might unfavorably on the uh, current state government here, but th there were no consequences other than potentially a little uh, ridicule. The people who did this modeling are all still employed. We've been told for several months that any day now we would get an updated version of the model and it, it never comes. Um, but <laughs> so supposedly they're still working and there have been absolutely no uh, no consequences at all. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, I, okay now I'm going to go back okay, to you, Mark, on this because you know, when I think of classics, I mean, here's my, you know, it was like, here's the thing, the Green New Deal essentially is calling for no fossil fuels, uh, the whole, you know, no nuclear energy. And maybe here's the question I'm going to ask you. Uh, it, it just popped in my mind, but, okay, Michael Schellenberger, who, by the way, believes in man-made, you know, AGW. You know, he, you know, in his yeah. most recent book, he still does, he still does not dispute that human activity is the main causative of our present warming, but he's also stated everything I've been telling you people about the worst case scenario that I've been myself telling you has been a lie or been you know, wrong. And, and, and so what happens? So what, you know, I guess my question is, how does the scientific community where you, it's, let's say a Schellenberger or a Curry or okay, who is that gentleman uh, out of Berkeley? A uh, Mueller is a Dick Mueller. Muller, yeah, Richard Muller. Yeah, Richard Muller. You know, sit back and have an intelligent conversation. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's what we need to debate. Because that I don't see at all. And certainly when you have people like Schellenberger basically saying, you know, we can't, you know, you know, get rid of fossil fuels and nuclear energy is a disaster for the economy. I mean, when they're admitting that, you know, you know it sounds like to me there is some ground or let's say a sensible energy policy. If let's say the more extremists get out of the way, uh, right? And yourself. I agree. Go ahead, you can't, yeah, that's what this is really about. Is they basically are trying to declare a climate emergency. When I say they, I mean, for instance, Joe Biden's upcoming administration. He's got. It was written, you know, by Casia uh, Cortez, Bernie Sanders' approval, his whole Green New Deal plank and climate platform. He's going to be dealing with a Congress that's going to be pushing a climate emergency. He's being urged by his advisors and climate activists he's sympathetic to to declare a climate emergency and essentially try to impose a climate a version of a climate lockdown on America. And what that will entail is he's going to be able to suspend parts of democracy and do more uh, on all sorts of different climate-related fronts. He's going to, first of all, undo everything President Obama did, which was undoing everything President I'm sorry, undoing everything President Trump did, which was undoing everything President Obama did. So we're going to go yin-yang here in America. But essentially, they want to scare people first so we can't have a rational energy debate. Now, I'm going to compare it to COVID here because John Perry says the parallels are screaming at us between COVID and climate. And here's how you compare it. We were told 2.2 million dead based on Neil Ferguson's discredited COVID model back in March. So what did we do? We didn't have time to rationally think it out. We didn't have time to ask questions like this was never in the playbook to do wholesale society lockdowns, national mass mandates, statewide mass. None of this existed. But, you know, there's no time to act. We're in a public health emergency. We have to do it now. 
this is the way progressives like to operate because one of their models, and if you, you know, Tom Friedman, I quoted in my book, in, uh, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, he actually says China is the model. He likes the way China does it right. They have one-party rule. They don't have all the messiness. They don't have all the delay. They don't have the industry funding. They don't have anything that can delay. They can just do what needs to be done. And the, the, what I will say here is the public health emergencies declared on COVID, and I fault President Trump with this. I'm not a fan of President Trump on COVID, but not for the reason most people think. I think he went way overboard in reacting to it instead of uh, treating it like the Hong Kong flu and the Asian flu in the 1950s and the 1960s when we dealt with this prior. But essentially, we did not have time to act. We didn't have time for, for rational debate. We had to act immediately. They like China because that's the way Chinese did it, and, this, and that's what we're facing here. They want a one-party rule. That's why they're trying to make climate an emergency. That's why COVID's an emergency, and that's the way they want it because they don't like democracy. They don't like debate. It's too messy. It's too, too slow. We are being an, an, uh, literally the greatest threat to our freedom and our, our nation's history Take outside of slavery and uh, 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 segregation. This is it, the lockdowns. Yeah. Hold on to a thought. This is Tom Donaldson uh, with uh, Mark Marino and Kevin Roach. We'll be right back here in a second. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Okay, Don Donaldson back here on the Donaldson Files. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, we do have a new website, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com, thebachelornewsradio.com. Uh, we also have some new shows, The Gray Leopard Cove. is a new show that will be coming on very shortly on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And the Bachelor News Radio Network dot com. You can get this show, and you can get the uh, some of our most recent programs. Just listen to them at your convenience. Here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Okay, Kevin. Uh, this is uh, to me. COVID to me is one of those emotional issues because I, I'm going to put it this way. I've got, you know, you know, basically I have a lot of friends of mine who are scared. I. Who scared? They're nervous. It's almost like, you know, and it's you know, they're and in some ways, I got family members who curtail their own, you know, activities, uh, for, you know, for the various fears. And and I guess my question is, you know, when does uh, this fear is paralyzing a good portion of what's going, you know, what we are able to do and can't do, and, and it's having its own negative impact, which you discussed. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think, I think it's pretty obvious that um, between the media and some politicians, um, people have been completely terrorized um, into believing that, you know, they're all going to get sick and die when the statistics pretty clearly show that for the bulk of the community dwelling population, the risk. Uh, is extremely low of um, having any uh, serious illness um, from this. And 
the results of that uh, terrorization is not just causing mental health problems for people, but we are now seeing increasing amounts of research um, that shows that we have an increase in heart attack deaths because people were afraid to go to the emergency room when they had clear symptoms. Uh, we have an increase in diabetes deaths because people ignored symptoms of either low or high blood sugar. Um, we have an increase in deaths from hypertension because people um, have been uh, afraid to go to the emergency room or seek routine care. Um, I just uh, yesterday, a study was released by a very prominent group in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, among Medicare beneficiaries, screenings for the most common uh, cancers are down by at least 50% and as high as 85%. That is the difference between somebody being caught at a very early stage and being able to be cured uh, and people um, not being diagnosed until their cancer has reached a far more um, serious stage and may lead to much more uh, serious illness and even death. Um, there's just example after example of this, and, and that kind of terrorization that results in those, uh, those kinds of consequences is directly the responsibility of the media and the politicians. And it's another example of a complete failure to have a balanced response that considers the interests of the entire population. And I am convinced that at the end of the day, the health harms alone from these government actions will be far worse than the toll from coronavirus. And if I could just add one, one sure. thing to uh, Kevin's comment there, there's a, uh, a paper out of South Africa that says, uh, for every life that the lockdown allegedly saves, uh, there is 29 lives dying. And this was done by South African insurance actuaries. A separate study by the U.K. government estimated much more conservative that four people die for every one life saved during a lockdown of COVID. So four people die of lockdown-related issues, delayed cancer screening, mental health, addiction issues, uh, heart issues. A big issue is with infant mortality because a lot of babies who have diarrhea and breathing problems, worried parents don't want to take them to the hospital, so they're delaying it, and we've lost higher infant mortality. So these are two studies now from South Africa and England that are actually coming up with hard numbers. Yeah. I, I, okay. The other, this, now I'm going to kind of switch over to climate change because I see a lot of similarities in this regard. Is that, you know, I've always stated that the, the, what we're witnessing now is like a dress rehearsal for the Green New Deal. And I, and and again, I, I guess my biggest fear is subsidies of health of science research, hurting research, or helping research, or let's say hurting research in the sense that if you don't produce the right result, you're not going to get funding. Yes, in and fact, I'll start with uh, you, Mark. Go ahead. One of our former presidents said the exact thing you're worried about. We must be alert to the danger that public policy could, could, be, could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite, where a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. 
Now think about that. That was President Dwight David Eisenhower, his farewell address in 1961, warning of the climate state, the COVID state we're now under. Eisenhower said the prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment project allocations in money is ever-present and gravely to be regarded. In other words, what we have here now, and I've given an example in my book of a butterfly scientist. Now, he does studies butterflies and has a – but no one really pays attention to him. So suddenly he decides, I'm going to do a modeling study on how possibly could, might, maybe butterflies in the American Southwest could be destroyed by 2080. So he does a modeling scenario, all, you know, all solid math and solid premise, but he comes up with three scenarios, butterflies benefit, butterflies not affected, butterflies horribly affected. The university gets it, says, look at this, butterflies doomed. The media office gets it. They release it out. The media is interested. UN suddenly interested. This, this butterfly scientist is now getting grants. He's going to UN climate conferences in, in Bali and Cancun. He's now listed as the 97% expert, all because he, he decided to do what the, what, the, what the funding of the day, if you will, is in climate research. And so he joined that bandwagon. Suddenly he's an expert, and no one questions his expertise. What does a butterfly scientist know about carbon dioxide and the geologic history of the earth and ice ages? And everything? Not, he doesn't study that, but it doesn't matter. He's got the right answer. So even if he's wrong on the science, he's, got the right, he's wrong in the right direction, which means he's favoring the public policy angle. That's what Eisenhower warned about. That's what we're living through. And now with COVID, all of the financing is going to, you can imagine, COVID studies and COVID and all the vaccine money is about to be made by this, uh, by huge vaccine makers. So we are in this deep, it actually has a name. It's called the Great Reset. The World Economic Forum dubbed it that uh, in June. They said we need a great reset of capitalism following coronavirus. And that's exactly what they're intending to do. Lockdown's greatest transfer of wealth from poor middle class to wealthy. Uh, this is the most astonishing thing that's happening right before our eyes. We are losing the battle. Most people aren't even aware of it. Okay. Okay. Kevin, I'm going to go back to you. Okay. All right. Sweden is now, the Sweden politicians are basically reversing some of the policies they've had. And if somebody says, you know, I guess the question I would throw back to you is, all right, Mr. Roach, you know, Sweden is an example you've been giving of doing a balanced approach. Now they're retreating from that. How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, I think that's inaccurate. They they have not retreated from their approach. The other observation I would make, which is highly ironic, is that, um, you know, in an era where we're supposed to follow the experts and the science, the public health experts uh, and scientists in um, Sweden did not agree with some of the changes that were made by the political leaders. Um, so I, I just found that kind of ironic in itself. But they you know, the supposed additional measures that they've put in place, which are to some extent limited by geography, um, uh, are, are really uh, pretty minor. And it's not a, you know, kind of wholesale reversal of the general policies they've had. The other thing I'll point out, which, you know, we just, I've been tracking this carefully, um, you know, here in Minnesota, we just uh, passed the dubious milestone of we now have a higher per capita death rate than Sweden does. And um, the question I always pose to people is, would you rather have gotten to that death rate the way Sweden did with no general lockdown, with schools being open for in-person learning, with the population being 
pretty free to um, go about its normal lives. And would you like to get there the way we've gotten here in Minnesota? And I suspect that after a couple of more months, um, we're going to have a substantially higher population death rate here in Minnesota than will exist in Sweden. And so you kind of have to ask yourself, which way worked better? Yeah. Hold on a thought. This is Tom Donson, coach. Uh, we're here on the Donaldson Files with uh, Mark Marino and Kevin Roach. If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. This is Tom Donson right back. Don't forget the bachelornewsradionetwork.com is our new website. We are now doing some updating of our network with a brand-new website, TheBachelorNewsRadioNetwork.com. You can come by and listen to our show uh, anytime, this particular show, at your convenience. So, um, TheBachelorNewsRadioNetwork.com. All right. All right. Okay. Uh, we got about 15 minutes left, and I do want to give you some time at the end of the show to kind of you know, talk about you know, you know, some of your major you know, projects you're on. But let me, let me, okay, let me put it this way, Kevin. You know, I've asked this at the beginning of the show. I'm going to kind of ask it again, you know, a little bit, you know, now. If you were advising the governor of Minnesota, what would you tell him? What policy he should be following to benefit all of Minnesota? What would that contain? Well, my first piece of advice would be to stop issuing unilateral orders. One of the worst things that's come out of this is the complete subversion of democratic processes, which, you know, at most should be tolerated for two, three days. There is no excuse in any state why the legislature should not be the primary body uh, kind of making decisions um, with in consultation with the governor. Um, that's far more democratic. It would lead to better decisions because you would have more perspectives, uh, more data, and more information considered. So that my first advice would be just stop with the emergency and stop with the orders. The second thing would be, as I said before, I, I would order that schools return to in-person learning for all students. Uh, and I would stick to that no matter what. The harms to children are just far too great. Um, you know, we've got an, a ridiculous order here right now telling people that they literally cannot uh, socialize in their own homes with anybody who doesn't live in the house. So you can't see your children. You can't see your grandchildren. Thank God it is widely ignored. But we literally have an order here that sells, that says that. That needs to go immediately. I think every business should be open. Um, I think, you know, people are perfectly capable of making good decisions about how to manage and handle and estimate the risk in their own lives. And I think it's frankly time to go back to kind of relying on that judgment instead of on this barrage of orders that are trying to micromanage people's lives now for over nine months. 
Okay, now, okay. Now, Mark, I'm going to put this to you this way. All right. Number one, what's a sensible energy plan that, A, would keep air clean, water clean, would even, you can even get Michael Schellenberger to to, uh, jump in on, because I know he's a big nuclear energy guy. So if somebody said to you, okay, give me an energy plan that 90% of us can live with, that would do everything everybody would Go ahead. Sure. It's a really one-word answer. Freedom. And that's the bottom line. Don't ban energy that's built America and proven successful, oil, gas, coal, and then mandate energy that's not yet ready to take over. What they want to do is take 3% of global energy production, solar and wind, and somehow magically expand that radically, with or without nuclear. You know, there's a, the Green New Deal originally said no nuclear, and now some people are trying to say, oh, yeah, we'll include some nuclear. But essentially, they are going to create an energy shortage in the United States, and they're going to raise prices, which are going to harm people on fixed income, poor people, seniors. You're going to have people, you know, remember, cold kills much more than warmth. So in the winter, when people can't afford energy bills, you're going to have seniors slipping away. So the answer to your question is the day people can go to the local Walmart, buy a solar panel, bring it home, put it on their roof, and get off the grid is the day we don't have to have an energy debate. Until such a time, don't ban energy that works. We're seeing this with cars as well. One of the Democrat candidates, Andrew Yang, wanted to ban private car ownership and have a roving fleet of electric cars. Well, now we're getting you know, this subsidized, not really mandated yet, but electric cars they're trying to shove down our throat. Well, that's great, but they're going to be going after now in the Biden administration regular cars, gas-powered cars. They're going to come up with preposterous very hard to reach cafe corporate average fuel economy standards for them. They're going to raise the cost. They're going to make calls smart. They make cars smaller, lighter, less safe. You're going to have a higher death toll in the end, possibly as the cars get lighter because the lighter car is less safe and smaller cars less safe. But what I would argue is if if green energy, as Al Gore says, is the entrepreneur's dream and all this money, great, let it happen. Let everything compete and let's see what can win at the end of the day here. Not government picking winners and losers. And that's the problem is the Green New Deal is all about declaring a climate emergency, not allowing debate, and then just allowing essentially lobbyists and uh, people behind closed room in the political process decide what's winners and losers. They're already talking about uh, President-elect Obama, whatever you want to, uh, Biden, is already talking about uh, another stimulus round, green energy like Obama did, the tens of billions of dollars, which led to companies like Solandra and even recent estimates coming out from mainstream news stories. These are not disputed. The people didn't receive their money back. They were investments that just went away. And we're going to be doing a whole other round of that. And I'm not against solar and wind, but I'm against saying solar and wind are the only answer and we're going to ban all other forms of energy and regulate it out of existence like Biden has talked about on the campaign trail and Camilla Harris about fracking and coal and oil and oil exploration. So we are facing a mess. Uh, and it's, you know, the next four years, we went from under President Trump, this is the most phenomenal statistic, to, from an energy importer to an exporter. We went from energy import. So it's the first time since Harry S. Truman was president, America not only had energy independence, energy dominance. And if you want to keep us out of wars in the Middle East, you want us to be energy independent and energy dominant. And we're now going to turn that on its head as we start crushing American energy 
beginning in January. Okay, Kevin, I'm going to throw this out to you, Kevin. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe a little bit out of your expertise. I know that these, you know, John Hinderacker's uh, Center for American Experiment have talked about Minnesota and mining, and it kind of fits into this, where you have a big debate within Minnesota, where northeast Minnesota, you got a ton of, like, hoop, copper, other rare minerals that can be mined, and people can make them and be profitable. And you have this opposition to that. And and is this kind of a similar debate that we're seeing with climate change or seeing with COVID, you know, mine or no mine, especially in Minnesota where, you know, we're talking, uh, you know, pretty good income for a lot of people outside of, uh, let's say, the, the metropolitan area. Well, I think the similarity is that the, the people who are opposed to the mining tend to um, quote and use uh, supposed science that is um, very poorly grounded in any actual data or reality. I, I think it's uh, pretty clear at this point that people can develop and operate mines in a way that is environmentally uh, safe and doesn't have untoward consequences toward the public health or toward kind of the, the natural environment. So I think that's that's where the similarity is, is people just will promote um, any kind of basically false or unreliable uh, scientific study. Um, and they have dupes in uh, government agencies who are more than happy to go along with it. All right. Uh, again, okay, Mark, I'm going to go back to you in this regard, okay? Uh, you sure. stated, okay, you just stated, okay, I can live with wind, I can live with solar as part of an overall strategy of energy. In other words, let the market decide. And so maybe, okay, from your perspective, we're, if we subsidize, if we had similar subsidies for all, or let's just say no subsidies for any of these energy sources and just a low tax rate, let's say, hey, these, you know, we'll, we'll just, ta- you know, if you do energy in the U.S. will tax you at this very low rate. You know, you'll let the market decide. Where does wind and solar come out? Well, it all depends on technological breakthroughs. Um, I don't want to ever say I, – again, I don't want to ever be positioned against wind and solar, but they have their own horrible environmental, ecological uh, issues. For instance, Wind and solar and electric cars, for that matter, rely on rare earth minerals, cobalt. And one of the things is in communist China or China uh, has been operating mines in Africa, accused by Amnesty International of using child laborers of worker exploitation in the worst conditions with no regulatory safeguards to produce all these rare earth minerals. As the United States has shut down our rare earth minerals because of environmental concerns. So we're outsourcing our emissions, our environmental uh, footprint by by all this. So solar and wind, uh, I don't know where they'll come out. They'll come out. Uh, they're only three percent of global energy production right now. But I think uh, solar has a much greater potential in the future of technological breakthroughs, and it could happen rapidly. So uh, a lot of uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation of how fast and when. It still need to rely on battery technology, but I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But the point is, neither do the politicians, and no one should be trying to to essentially micromanage our future and dictate it. And most of all, it's only being done based 
on the grounds of a, a climate emergency and there's no time to debate. We must act now. Again, the exact same playbook that came about with COVID. 2.2 million deaths are about to happen. We have to lock down. We have to shut down the entire world to fight this or we're all going to die. It's going to be a catastrophe. That's, where they, that's their model, and they love it. The environmentalists at first were jealous of the COVID lockdowns, and now they're jumping on the bandwagon and very excited. In fact, the best phrase is from Jane Fonda. The exact quote was, COVID is God's gift to the left. Actress Jane Fonda. And the reason she said that is because everything they've ever wanted is in the solutions. And what do I mean by that? The left progressives, particularly public health, climate left, they love what I would call the Soviet approach to human society, regulating every aspect down to your outdoor barbecue, how many people, how many different households. This is what progressive bureaucrats wake up every day. It's not that they're evil. It's that this is what they do. They want to micromanage every level of society, whether it's energy, transportation, the food you eat, the appliances, the, uh, you know, how many people you've been in contact, contact tracing, you name it. All the same boat. That's what they're doing. Okay. Okay, I'm going to stop everybody right there right now because we got about three minutes left to the show, and I want to give you guys a chance to uh, talk about yourself. So, first of all, Kevin, thank you very much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, you did a great job. Uh, and uh, the question I'm going to ask, uh, ask you is, okay, talk about your blog site, how people can listen to it. And also, I know you're a consultant, so if you want to talk about how people can get a hold of you as a consultant, go right ahead. Uh, yeah, I think, they, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, people who want to read the blog can find it at www.healthy-skeptic.com. Um, and uh, every now and then I do a podcast on the blog, and um, I believe uh, either today or tomorrow, There'll actually be a link up to a YouTube narration of a standard presentation that I've put together on the uh, on the epidemic. Okay, okay, Mark. I mean, you got so much to talk about, so try to keep it within ninety seconds. <laughs> All right, great. My website, climatedepot.com. At the very top of the website, uh, you'll see my report on the COVID lockdowns, uh, entitled "The Great Reset." Uh, in addition to that, I have a, a film out, just came out in September, Climate Hustle 2. You can go to Climate Hustle 2, either the number or the word, climatehustle2.com, and you can stream it or order DVD. I think that will go through the A to Z. It opens with the COVID climate connection, but we go all through solar, wind. It asks the question, are they trying to control the climate or you? The answer is they're trying to control people. Same thing in COVID. They're not trying to control a virus at this point anymore. They are trying to control human society, every aspect. That's what we're fighting. We are fighting the super state regulatory state right now. That is the battle. Don't let anyone tell you it's not. It's not about necessarily a profit motive. This is an ideological battle. People who wanted this for decades are finally using COVID to achieve their dream of a perfectly planned, masterminded from above government society. That's what we're living in right now. And it's, I, I don't see it lifting anytime soon without mass protest. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mark. Thank you very much, Kevin. This is Tom Donaldson uh, saying goodnight. We'll be back next week on the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Don't forget, uh, BachelorNewsRadioNetwork.com. You can listen to this show and other past shows 
at your convenience. Thank you very much. Thank you, mate. Uh, thanks, our guest, and good night. Welcome, everyone, to the Bachelor News Radio Network. You are listening to one of the hottest law enforcement podcast shows in podcast land. You're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And we have for you an exciting show uh, for you guys today. And we're going to be talking about a very important topic, me and my co-host, who goes by the name of T-Swag. I got to introduce you to him before we get into the topic because he is the man. He is the person to my left or to my right. T-Swag, how you doing today, brother? What's going on, brother Virgil? How you doing, man? I'm doing all right, man. I'm doing all right, man. You you kind of sound a little, a little, you know, not you know, not that upbeat. You know, you don't have that energy in you. No man, that's my swag voice, man. That's my swag. Oh, oh, my that's just the swag. Oh, okay, that's the swag voice. Okay, all right. No, I'm, well, I'm good. I'm good, brother. I'm good. I'm doing good, man. It's Christmas time and excited, and you know, ready, yeah, ready to ready to eat some uh, dressing and and pecan pie and stuff. Oh man, you mean you're not you're not eating your your chitlins? You're not eating chitlins, man. I didn't say that. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. Maybe there may be some there may be some listeners that don't even know what chitlins are, man. Oh so. man, I, hey, I, I think we've got some listeners, some loyal listeners who definitely know about chitlins. They know about chitlins. Well, so, they so they are not they're not they're not chitterlings. They're chitlins. Chitlins. So Chitlins, yes, Chitlins. <laughs> all right. Well, Keith, man, we definitely want to, you know, again, welcome all of our listeners to to the show because we've got a uh, an exciting topic that we're going to talk about, and you know, where everybody is at. Hopefully, everybody is 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 safe and having a, a good uh, a good day, and you're staying warm because you you may be. Um, getting some snow like we're getting where where I am in, in Oklahoma. So I think the same could be for, for Arkansas. So it's definitely cold and chilly. It's a good day for a good bowl of stew or a good bowl of chili. It is, man. And I, I, I make wonderful homemade chili and wonderful homemade stew. And I, might, I must say also I make a great uh, homemade chicken pot pie. You do, okay. I do. Okay. Well, okay. Well, hey, if you say you make a good T Swag says he makes a good homemade stew, a homemade chili, and a good homemade pot pie. Hey, and the difference between you and and the difference between you and I, I wash my hands before I cook. 
So oh. I just had to get that in there. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. And and we definitely want to make sure we we uh, we we introduce our our the producer who runs everything behind the boards, Mister Mister L A. You know, you you two guys have got he's got L A. You've got swag. I I don't have uh, you know one of those names oh, that I can. Oh yes. Oh yes, you do. We just can't say it over the radio. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, we'll 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 keep that between you and me. But but listen, we uh <laughs> we definitely thank you for tuning in and uh the calling number to the show is 646-929-0130 and we want to remind you that you can follow us on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and we're really excited Keith because uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network has a, a new website that's up. Uh, it's the BachelorNewsRadioNetwork.com. That's the BachelorNewsRadioNetwork.com. You can go up, you can click on You and the Law, and you can listen to us all day long, every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, because we are the hottest and baddest podcast show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I just, oh, had, I just had to put that. Man. In. I just had to put that in there. It's a, you know, so it's the truth. It's the truth, bro. It's the truth. Yeah, man, it's the truth. Yeah. So, so today, you know, we're, you know, we talk, we we talk weekly about the topics that we're going to talk about, and and I think you know this is a topic that needs to be talked about with our listeners, and it's a topic that needs to be talked about in communities and in law enforcement. Uh, the brick in the blue wall of silence, the duty to intervene, you know, and so that topic right there is, is something that sometimes is you see that brick wall is put up. That's something that we don't talk about or should not be talked about because you're kind of opening up a topic that could be kind of, um, touchy with some people, but I think, you know, it's a topic that the public needs to hear from law enforcement and uh, because, you know, officers, do, no matter what workplace you're in, but especially in, in law enforcement with everything that's going on today, Keith, um, officers really need to uh, make sure that they're doing what their policies are saying that they're supposed to do and that officers are doing, everybody is doing what the policy is saying. If you're not doing what your policy is saying, if you're violating that or violating some citizen's rights, you have a duty to report that, and you have a duty to intervene when you see somebody crossing the line, Keith. Let me ask you a question, Virgil. Why do we have to have a policy? That should be natural. Officers to do the right thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm glad formally, and I think this is a this is a, you know this policy duty to intervene is a is a national platform that's going to be uh, you know somebody asked me the other day what did I think is going to happen over the next five three to five years in law enforcement I think there's going to be a lot of national standards like the duty to intervene uh, they're going to be a lot when it comes to talking about diversity. And things like that. There's going to be some there's going to be some national standards, so everybody's doing the same thing. 
But this is this is something that local governments have taken upon themselves uh, based based on resolutions, based on ordinances, uh, to ensure that law enforcement officers, law, police chiefs are implementing this. And if you're a co- accredited department, uh, you, sh- you should have been in the policy a long time ago. Yeah, and you know, Keith, you know, one of the and as we get into the show, uh, one of the things that are that have come out is the, that there has been policies around for duty to intervene for decades for some agencies. For some, it hasn't been. But for some agencies, they, they've had a policy on the book for a very long time, but there's been some backlash to officers stepping up doing the right thing. They have found themselves on the outside looking in. And so even when you know, you made a comment, why should there be a policy? But even when there is a policy, you still see situations that happen where officers who are trying to do the right thing, now they become, I don't know if the right word is the, the, the victim, or they just, they become, uh, like I said, outside looking in. And, and it's, it's almost like, hey, you're the rat, you're the snitch, now you're not a part of this brotherhood, and how dare you? you know, report a fellow officer. And so you've had officers who have, who've lost their careers because they decide to do the right thing. So, but one thing I'll say, there's not a policy that there's supposed to be a policy and it's supposed to be doing the right thing, but the policy to protect the officer from doing the right thing does not really exist because now all of a sudden we get into the the uh, police unions, no matter if it's the FOP or the the Brotherhood, every union is going to go against their own member for doing the right thing. Well, I tell you, uh, things things are changing. Uh, uh, the the community's voices, the nation's voices, are being heard. Uh, and Definitely. so, uh, I th- I think there's going to be some there's going to be some mandatory things coming through uh, when it comes to uh, these type of, uh, of of topics and these type yeah. of policies, policies, and and you know if they're right before you know we're getting ready to come up on a on our first break, but uh, Keith, we're going to take this break, but when we come back, we're going to definitely jump into this topic. But you're listening to you and the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics. And tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern. And every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. Johnsonfile presents talk radio like you've never heard it before on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We go live every Tuesday and Wednesday on this network, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to thebachelornews.airtime.pro. We are on the cutting edge, and we are ahead of the curve on what is happening while the media tries to catch up. We talk issues from right to left. Once a month, we have Ladies' Night, where we talk relationship in the 21st century, and nothing is off-limits or taboo. Johnsonfile on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Network. 
Welcome back to You on the Law on the Bastard News Radio Network. 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with Chief uh, Humphrey and Virgil Green. Uh, if you have a question, comment, uh, also hit them up on their Facebook page. And uh, you can hit us up in the chat room as well as they continue to discuss doing the right thing and and uh, doing it is fitting, doing it by LL Cool J instrumental playing in the background, guys. Um, I want you to follow up, if you could, Keith Humphrey Swag, on what you said with mandates and things coming down, <clears throat> excuse me, with a, a new administration um, and a new president-elect who served in a administration that had the 21st century, 21st century uh, policing? Well, I think the main thing, L.A., thank you for that question. I think the main thing is going to be the fact of are we doing 21st century policing? You know, they worked so hard uh, to uh, develop that program, and that was a program that was developed by a philosophy that was developed by uh, the president, academics, uh, civil rights leaders, uh, criminal justice, faith-based leaders, uh, and, and mental health leaders came together and said, this is what we need to do to improve the relationship with law enforcement and the community, especially communities of color. And so the roadmap has been there, L.A. It's been there. It, 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 it walks you through. It walks you through how to re- re- minimize the possibility of the probability of a Ferguson happening. It minimizes the prob- probability of a of a of a um, uh, Eric Gardner or you know George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. It, it 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 shows you how to minimize that. The roadmap is there. If what we had is we still had those law enforcement agencies that were doing their own thing. They didn't think they had to follow those because number one, we've never had this problem. Number two, no one's ever complained. Well, yeah, you've all we've all had that problem, and people have complained. So I think you're going, getting ready to get an administration that's going to focus back on community 21st century policing to hold law enforcement accountable and to, and to show the community how to hold law enforcement accountable, but at the same time, how do you work with law enforcement? Because we, we have to have law enforcement. We need to hold them accountable, but at the same time, you need to know how to hold them accountable. Well, and, you know, I'll add to that, Keith, that, you know, this new administration coming in was a part of the, uh, uh, under the Obama administration that put together 21st century community policing. You know, Joe Biden right. was was heavily involved with that, and the Justice Department was, was involved with that. Uh, the organization that you and I have been members of, Noble, was heavily involved with that along with all these other organizations and other police chiefs and you know it right after you know president obama was was very vocal in how he said that you know trayvon martin could have been his son you know then you had the deal that happened in ferguson and everybody was like how do we prevent another ferguson from happening and like you said the roadmap has been there but how many people has been following that roadmap and how many agencies adopted 
those six pillars of the 21st century community policing key. And well, if the they did adopt it, those go, things, well, if they did adopt those things, now if they did adopt those things, Keith, why did we have, uh, you know, incidents in Baltimore, incidents in Wisconsin, all these different things that have happened, incidents in Minneapolis, all these things have happened after a very well put together uh, policy of the 21st century community policing. These things still happen. And we're not talking about small agencies. We're talking major city agencies who they know how to do things the right way, but those things were not, if they were implemented, they were not fully implemented or they were just said, Hey, we talked, we talked about it. But again, Keith, that is just a problem that we're going to continue to have with the policing industry is the fact that, oh, it sounds good. We'll we'll adopt the 21st century community policing. We'll put it on our website. Are we really doing following those pillars of the 21st century community policing? Well, I, I think I think you know COP COP. We know about COP community oriented policing. You know that that's been a that's been a platform, and that's and that's been the cry of law enforcement for twenty to thirty years. COP community oriented policing. We see mm-hmm. partnerships. Neighborhood policing, we've been there. Now, this is, and we all know this. I've talked to some of some of the, some of our peers throughout the nation, and what happened was a lot of those programs were tied to, uh, you know, a lot of the funding, uh, the cops hiring program. You know, if you're doing COP, we're going to give you money to hire these officers. Uh, nothing to necessarily say anything about how you train these officers, but we're going we're going to hire you. We're going to give you more officers so you can put more officers in the neighborhood. I can tell you right now, if you don't, if you can hire, give me a thousand officers, and I can put an officer on every street block, twenty-four-seven, three-sixty-five, with all the technology that they need. But if I'm not teaching officers social intelligence, racial intelligence, and emotional intelligence, and if a chief is not setting that tone, you might as well. Just have one police officer guarding a, guarding a city of a million, because you've yeah, got to have people that want to do this job and understand. And, and we and so when you start telling people, you start having these chiefs explain to me in your strategic plan because what should be happening, Virgil in L.A. and to the listeners, when you do a strategic plan, which there are departments who may not have one, and there are departments out there who don't have policies, but when you're doing yeah, a you're- strategic plan. Your strategic plan should focus on 20, every, each pillow of 21st century policing. Your strategic plan should focus on sitting down and bringing community partners in to talk about what your plans are. Your, your, your strategic plan, it should have been discussed with some members of the community, leaders in the community, so they will understand and give some input and hear why you want to do this and hear and you hear input of why. You should, why these things should be added. There's nothing difficult about that. There's nothing difficult about that. No, it's not. Nothing. And so, and so it can be done. It can be done. But I I goes back to what I've said over and over again, Virgil, in LA and to the listeners, police chiefs don't know because they don't want to know. 
It's not because they, it's because they don't want to know. If I don't know something, then I can, that's my defense. My defense is I don't know. But when you don't want to know, you don't have a defense. Well, and you're right, Keith. And, I, you know, like I said, it, it starts at the top with the leadership and it, how that leader is setting the tone to, to operate that agency. And, you know, sometimes larger agencies, they – because there are so many different components of the agency. And, and if, as I say this, it's almost like I'm trying to make an excuse for, for these larger agencies because you've got – smaller agencies who are doing the right thing, and then you got some who are not doing the right thing. But, again, it just comes back because you may have a, an agency like uh, Chicago, Keith, who you may have – you've got the chief, but you may have, you know, six deputy chiefs, and you may have another layer of supervisors under them. So how is it that everybody is supposed to be doing the same thing and if somebody decides, well, hey, this is not something I'm really that that I really bought into, so I'm not going to really push it out on the sector that I, that I'm working in, and so we're just going to continue doing business the way we've been doing business. And but you've got a chief who is meeting with community leaders who is trying to do the right thing, and those things are just kind of falling through the cracks. But you know, this topic that we're talking about you know, this blue wall and people and officers, because all of a sudden after the Minneapolis deal, Keith, everybody has said, these officers just stood there. They, they didn't do anything. Uh, they should have intervened. Well, then you got people saying, well, two of them were rookies or one of them was a rookie and they hadn't been on the street that long. So you've got officers who are trying to do the right thing, some, but then I think it just goes back to something that we've always talked about, Keith, and we'll continue to talk about is just the culture of policing. And it's like you do not intervene. You do not put your hands on another officer and tell him or her to stop doing what they're doing. It's almost like well, that's, you just, know. That, that, that's just not something that, you, that, that happens. Now, let me say this. There have been policies in my 30-some years of policing, there have been policies on the book that says that when, when, that when an officer gets out of control or does something that's in violation of policy on a call or investigation, the senior officer is supposed to step up and intervene. Now, people can say, well, who's a senior officer? You know, so what happens if you have a veteran officer doing something and you've got a one-year rookie here? Is he going to step up? And so I think you know, I mean, there's always been ways to get around some of the policies. People can manipulate themselves around the policy. Well, yeah, he was the well, the veteran officer was doing wrong. So, you know, we expect this officer to do that. So, I think now that everybody has a duty to intervene. It doesn't matter what, doesn't matter who it is, their what, rank, right. it doesn't matter their tenure. Everybody has a a duty to intervene. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, hey, Keith, we want to remind our listeners that you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, if you just now come in on the show, uh, we've got a, a, a hot topic that we're talking about, and that topic is officers' duty to intervene to prevent another officer from violating a, a person's uh, rights from them overly uh, using their uh, authority 
And so this is just something, you know, we want to encourage our listeners, Keith, who those who are listening to us, uh, uh, whether you're in Oklahoma, Arkansas, no, uh, Kansas, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, definitely, uh, you know, go into the chat room or go in and, and come online and talk to us about this topic because this is something that we want to get your your thoughts and your input on and, and some things that you may you may have some concerns that you've seen in person and, and, and would like to ask some, some questions of us. But, you know, Keith, uh, there's been, like you said, this, agencies have had these policies for a long time, and but we're still having these, these conversations. And, you know, we're getting ready to come up on another break, Keith, but one of the things that, that I would like to talk about is that when we come out of this break is, you know, when a minority officer steps up and does the right thing, and he goes against, uh, you know, a white officer. How how does that how is that officer viewed among his other peers? Uh, especially when, you know, there's an officer that we're going to talk about who was fired for not shooting someone. So Keith, we're going to jump in and, and take this next break, but. You're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe Radio Broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Join Barry Barnes for Locker Talk on the Bachelor Pad Network as he presents NFL news and evaluates players Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. This is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of The Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called the philosopher of current events, an independent, open-minded conservative with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Show it's the bachelor, it's a you and the law on the bachelor news radio network 646 929 0130. The number to get in touch with us, Virgil Green. You have a question for them, comments hit us up at that number. The chat room's open. You also hit them up on their Facebook page, you and the law, uh, on Facebook as well, guys. I did send you a question from a listener, um, and take it away. All right. Well, hey, we want to welcome everyone back to 
you and the law, and we're definitely having a uh, uh, a great topic, a great conversation with you guys this this, this afternoon. But um, Keith, I guess one of the listeners uh, wants to know if police will extend if listener wants to know if police will extend to all law enforcement agencies. And sorry about that, guys. Um, I didn't uh, send the info over correctly. They wanted to state to your topic, accountability and intervening. What do you think that will extend to all law law enforcement agencies like FBI, Sheriff's Department, et cetera? Right. I, I, you know, Keith, I think, you know, uh, that is something that, that's across the board with with all law enforcement agencies, whether you're an FBI agent, uh, sheriff's department, or with the local mun- uh, municipal police department, uh, those same things apply. And, I, you know, uh, as we're getting ready for this, this show, you know, I ran across some information where a um, uh, an FBI agent, he – you know, spoke out and went against this this brick wall, this this blue wall, and uh, because he it was the right thing to do. So I don't think you know this is something that across the board, LA, and to our listeners that um, no matter what branch of law enforcement you're in, th- those policies and those things need to be uh, carried out. Well, the, the policies and stuff exist because in a lot of states, it's mandatory that you have policies, certain policies. And if you, you know, certain policies regarding the use of force, certain policies regarding the reporting, uh, complaints and things like that. And, 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 a, and a lot of them, if they're, if they're accredited, they definitely have the policies. But, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, when do we start doing the right thing? I mean, the policies, the policies are there. The standards are there. Uh, it, it, it just goes on to how far or how how well does a police chief want uh, that want to execute those policies, uh, those standards. Uh, a lot of departments, I can tell you right now, we're looking at a matrix uh, when it comes to discipline. Because you know, one thing about discipline, uh, I've seen it all over the place. I mean, I've seen the the final discipline all over the place from. Nothing recommending, nothing of determination, you know, depending on what it is, depending on who the person is, depending on who the supervisor making the recommendation is. And, 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 and you know, it, it comes down to what's the purpose of discipline? Well, discipline is to correct uh, someone who's done something wrong. Uh, and and, and we, some, we don't use it the right way. I've said this before. The policies are there. The standards are there. The checks and balances are there. It's the fact of what are you doing with the ones that exist? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's the question. What are you doing with the standards and the, and the policies and things that are, that are in existence that, that, that prohibit the behavior of, of officers when it comes to excessive force, when it comes to failure to do a report, when it comes to criminal acts? Those policies are there. Those standards are there. Statute is there. Statute doesn't and it should never uh, be different for a police officer than a citizen. It should never be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. and, 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 and so the standards are there. Federal law is there. Uh, civil rights, uh, the uh, civil rights uh, violation uh, policies are there. Uh, uh, so, so 
Yes, all departments, whether it's county, local, sheriff, state, federal, they're all they all have policies and guidelines they have to follow. They're there. It's the state, the feds, everybody. They have the guidelines. Yeah, correct. Well, you know, you know, Keith, I wanted to share this with, with our listeners, uh, you know, right before we went to the break, I, you know, shared that uh when an officer what happens to the officer when he is trying to do the right thing? He intervenes or he follows the policy, but he finds himself being fired for uh, doing the right thing. You know, and I'm going to bring up the situation that happened back in 2016 with an officer, uh, Madeer, who responded to a domestic call, and uh, he worked for an agency in, in, in West Virginia. Responded to a domestic call. Officer Madeer uh, is Puerto Rican. Uh, the gentleman is an African-American male. Uh, responded to a domestic call. Uh, the person had a weapon. Uh, he was waving a gun, but Officer Madeer did everything he could to de-escalate the situation. He, he saw that this man wanted him to shoot him. He just said, shoot me. Well, Officer Madeer just said, no, I'm not going to do that. He de-escalated the situation. He changed his tone. He became really focused on this person who had a weapon, and, and, and he, could have, he could have shot him and killed him. But he did everything he could keep to de-escalate the situation. And this, uh, uh, the gentleman's wife called 911 back and said, hey, my husband has a has a weapon, and, you know, he's trying to, you know, trying to commit suicide. Or the, So the officers responded to assist this officer. One of the officers arrived on the scene, Keith, while this officer is trying to de-escalate the situation, and he's pretty much got it under control. Within seconds of them arriving on the scene, one of the officers shot and killed this person. This officer was was later terminated because he did not shoot this man. So when we talk about officers, the duty to intervene, officers trying to follow their policies, but here it is, you have an officer who is doing everything he can to prevent from killing a person, but he is ultimately terminated because he refused to kill a person. What does that say about the state of law enforcement, Keith? Well, that's, that's the, that's what the community is concerned, uh, concerned about that, that, you know, I, I mean, birds think about it. How many police chiefs during the, during the protest, you get, uh, you get chief best in Seattle and you get uh, uh, other chiefs uh, in cities that decided not to be heavy handed during protests. And they were, mm-hmm. They were ridiculed and chastised uh, from leaders in Washington and even some of their state leaders because they weren't heavy-handed enough. And and it comes down to uh, – I'll give you an example real quick. Robert White, R.C. White, who is a, who is a mentor to many African-American police chiefs, uh, who, uh, who uh, his last job was the chief in, in, in Denver. And, and during a, the protest a couple years ago, uh, you had uh, protesters actually march, marching toward the police memorial, 
and they basically we had they had officers staged, um, and you know to prevent any violence, and they threw paint on the memorial, and he basically told the officers to stand down. This memorial can be cleaned. Uh, it's not permanent damage. This is a part these people are expressing whether I agree with it or not. They're expressing their frustration. We can clean the memorial. Uh, he had members of his organization that ridiculed him for that. But when you look at it and you listen to RC, what he basically said is we can clean, we can clean the paint off that memorial. We can't mm-hmm. clean this blood off the streets. And exactly. so I'm not going to have my officers being heavy handed over, over property damage when we can, when, when we don't have to be. And so he was ridiculed for that. So it, it even comes from the, it even, the, it even happens to the chief when he's sending the message of being professional, being socially conscious, being emotionally intelligent. They're still ridiculed because they're going to think we're weak. They're going to think we are, uh, they can run this city. I mean, I've had people say that before. Oh, if we don't start pursuing people or if we don't start pulling people out of windows, then all the crooks are going to come to our city and they're going to think that everybody, that they can just do anything. That wasn't where I'm at currently, but I've heard that mm-hmm. in the past. And so there's this perception that if you allow people to, uh, if you don't use heavy-handed tactics and use more of the uh, professional and de-escalating tactics, you're selling your police department is weak. Uh, and so just think about that. If that's the message that you're sending from Washington, from the state level, the city level, county level, whatever, why would your police department or your police officers act any differently? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just like this, you know, this deal that happened to this officer in West Virginia, Keith, you know, it, it sends a chilling message to the community that, uh, an officer did everything he could. I mean, he wasn't, you know, he determined that this man was not a threat to him, even though he was armed. But what was later discovered after the fact, after these other officers had killed uh, this, this individual, was that the weapon he had, Keith, was unloaded. There wasn't any right. weapons. In. So you're going to have people who may be listening to us who will say, well, that was found out after the fact. You know, we're taught, we're, we're taught and trained to uh, to take care of the threat. And if, if a person has a weapon, I don't know if if it's loaded or unloaded. And I'm not going. I'm going to go home. If that means uh, me taking a person's life, then I've got to live with that. But again, it's just like we had a situation here in Oklahoma City just several days ago where a 60-year-old homeless person was was shot and killed by a police officer. It it has been protesting. It has been a a heated debate about what could have been done to prevent that from happening. And here is the same similar situation, similar, the fact that this man had a, 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 a knife here in Oklahoma City versus this man having a gun um, and the officer did everything he could not to kill this person, but ultimately he lost his career behind doing the right thing because he didn't 
he didn't feel constitutionally that he had the right to kill this individual. He felt that that yeah, he does have a weapon, but I can c- contain this situation here. He's not a threat to anybody outside of where we were at. And I know some people are listening, Keith, they would probably say, oh, no, you, you guys are way off there. Chief, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, if I see somebody with a weapon, I'm going to shoot and kill them. But that's just some things need to be handled differently. But, Keith, we're coming up on our last break, so we're going to take this break and get back into this hot topic. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Back of the News Radio Network. Recovery Month has become widely recognized and does an outstanding job of celebrating recovery, increasing awareness, and acknowledging the amazing work of providers, advocates, people in recovery, and their families. I believe our work together is helping many Americans better understand, seek out, attain, and sustain recovery. What began as a small and very good idea has grown into a national, mainstream, sustained, and systematic public education and support effort, all focused on the message that people recover. Getting the message of recovery right is critical because people take action based on what they hear and see and, most importantly, what they experience. Experience shapes our knowledge, our values, our attitudes, our beliefs, and our action. Of those who recognized their need for treatment but didn't receive care, the number one reason was no health coverage and could not afford the cost. No one in need should be denied the opportunity for treatment and recovery in our country. To the show, you and the law. Chief Keith Humphrey, Swag Humphrey, and uh, Virgil Green, 646-929-0130. Number to get in touch with us. Chat room is open. Put them up with your questions, comments on Facebook. And don't forget, as uh, Virgil said, if you miss any of their broadcasts, you can go to our website, the BachelorNewsRadioNetwork.com, BachelorNewsRadioNetwork.com, and uh, go to the You and the Law page to check out what they have to say. Hot topics, important topics, and and Virgil and Swag, I think all eyes will be on not just police standing up doing the right thing, but um, the reaction. 70 million people voted for one side, that one side denied police brutality, denied that racism exists, denied the blue wall. So it's going to be interesting how uh, people like yourself, leaders and chiefs like yourself, are going to deal with these. The policies are there, but 70 million of those people, some of which are your brethren. Kick it back to you. Well, you know, you're definitely right, L.A. You know, it's 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 upon the, the leaders who have these uh, positions as police chiefs, as sheriffs, 
but Keith, you know, I, you know, I'm just going to go back real quick on this deal that happened in West Virginia. Ultimately, it was a it was the police chief's decision to terminate this officer for not shooting this individual. So, you know, yeah, just like, you know, we all, we've got some good police chiefs, we got some bad, we got good police officers, we got bad police officers. But when you set the tone for your agency, the officers have to respect that. They have to not – it's not a deal of, hey, I need to buy into this, but respect the – the leadership and and respect the policies that are put in place and and follow those policies. But one of the things, Keith, that we see is that when officers do bad things, not they're often sometimes rewarded for doing the bad things. And the people that are trying to do the right things, they are rewarded with them being terminated or them being uh, labeled as a rat or as a snitch. And, and I'm going to say this, Keith, and, and to our listeners, one of the things when we talk about this topic of the duty to intervene, you may have a young police officer, just like the officers in, in Minneapolis, hadn't been on but a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and they're, they're looking forward. They're looking like, I want to be here 20 years. I want to be get promoted. I want to be able to work this uh, this assignment or whatever. But they know and they've heard from the the other officers that, man, you don't want to go up against so-and-so. It is a culture, especially entrenched with agencies, Keith, like Philadelphia, uh, Boston, uh, New York. Uh, all these larger agencies have a, a, an entrenched culture that you do not go out against the police. Remember the movie with uh, Denzel Washington? Where he played, uh, what was it, American Gangster? And you had the 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 police officer who turned attorney, who went after, you know, this uh, the character that Denzel Washington was playing. He turned against the cops, but he was he was labeled. There's been officers who have lost their lives because they tried to do the right thing, but they were silenced. So. That's another problem that we have to address with these young generation of police officers who are coming in, Keith, more educated, uh, and they know right from wrong. So how do you get to those younger officers to say, you've got to stand up and do the right thing? Yeah, you got to look at your curriculum. Uh, you got to still go back and look who's teaching that curriculum. Uh, you can't mm-hmm. have the same people that were there 10 or 15 years ago teaching because they appear to be uh, the best people. You've got to do your audits, and that's why I'm a big proponent of moving people around and not allowing people to be in positions for for too long because you do get stagnated. You do instruction becomes there. So you got to the curriculum. You got to have the right people teaching the curriculum. You got to have. You got to make sure that your your focus is on on uh, intelligence, emotional, racial, social intelligence. But this is the part we forget. We forget that you've got to have the right field training officers for these younger officers. You've got to have the right people yeah. in the car with these young, these young people for the time that they're in field training. You've got to have the right people in there training them. 
And then you got to make sure that you're utilizing the probationary period correctly. I've said that over and over again. And you got to make sure you're using your early intervention programs properly and your evaluation period properly. And you're sitting down with these officers. The supervisors are sitting down with these officers regularly and just talking to them and, and talk about their, their career development and, and talk about integrity and things like that. All of those things have to be in place. You can't have one. You can't have one without the other five or six. You can't have yeah. all five or six without the other one. Yeah. Well, and you know, Keith, another thing that you know, like I mentioned earlier, just the culture of of policing. Uh, there's some resistance uh, to having outside uh, oversight, uh, where you've got. Uh, people within the community who are community stakeholders who they want to see a good police department because when you see a good police department, it improves the quality of life for everybody. Everybody is getting along. Yeah, you don't have crime here and there, but you the, the community is involved with the police officers and the police officers are involved with the community. And so when you put in place uh, – because right now, Keith, as you know, the the big word is defund the police. It is still a big word, and you're having agencies who are struggling trying to prevent those things from happening with their local government. But there's been a resistance to some agencies to say, you know, let us put together a citizen advisory panel to review these things that these officers do and let that independent panel uh, make a recommendation to the chief uh, based on the facts that was presented to that panel. Uh, Because again, I think that just improves the relationship with our communities, Keith, especially the minority community, because the minority community, the Latinos, the, the blacks feel like we are a our voice is not heard, and you got so many people who say, "Well, you can kill us, but you don't want to hear our voice and so there has to be we've got to stop this resistance to change and accept the change and move along with the times because you've got some agencies that are doing the right thing, just like you're doing in in Little Rock everything. Is, is is working toward that way of improving the better relationships within the community. Uh, and, and that starts with putting in citizens who can have a voice as to what's going on with their police department. Because you got guys who will say, man, you need to get out of my town. You need to, This is my department. Uh, okay, we need to get away from that. That's that old mentality of thinking. Uh, that this is your city. It's not your city. It's the city belongs to the people. What does a good department look like, Virgil? What is a? That's a good question. I, I think. I think a is good that subjective. Is that a subjective question? Is that a subjective topic? <laughs> well, I just. I mean, you know, we talk about it. What does it, it look like? Well, and you know, again, you got some people who say. Man, a a good department looks like uh, we've got the the fancy equipment, we got nice cars, and we've got all these different gadgets. 
but what a, a department, a good department looks like is a department that is connected with its community. And that starts with the chief all the way down. And, you know, sometimes, Keith, and I'll say this, even, you know, we in that position and been in a position as police chief that sometimes you may become stagnant yourself and you may need to remove yourself if you've been around so long because you're not catching up with the times or you're not trying to be a part of that change. And sometimes guys get in these positions, they're there for 20 years, and their idea is, well, I've molded somebody else to take my position. Well, that person has been there 20 years, and they've seen everything that you've done. So what's going to really change? Is there going to be some significant changing in how that police department is going to look? So, you know, again, it just goes back to having these conversations with with our peers and having these conversations with our community leaders. And I think when you have the community involved with selecting, if there's a change with the new police chief, having the community involved with that process really means a lot because now it's not just left up to the city manager or a uh, mayor to decide ultimately that you're going to pick this person because again it just goes back to how well a person is in tune with today's uh climate of law enforcement and what they can do to change what a police department looks like well i'll tell you Virgil, it, it it's it's really not a difficult thing to do it, it, no, it's it, not. It's hiring it's the not. right, hiring the right, hiring the right person, holding that person accountable, the checks and balance system, the strategic plan, the training records—not training records, but the training uh, plan as far as the curriculum, discipline curriculum, uh, discipline uh, uh, profiles, uh, uh, um, having those difficult conversations. And getting out in the community and and seeing what your community thinks about you. Surveys, uh, citywide surveys, not every five years, but once a year. There's companies out there right now that that they do those. Uh, they do surveys on a on a weekly basis. There there are uh, electronic surveys that go that go out, so city departments can see how they are responding to the needs of their um, of their community. Uh, and so mm-hmm. a lot of this has nothing to do with funding either, you know, because we talk about we don't have the funding. A lot of this doesn't have a lot to do with funding because there no, are there are people who can, there are academics, there are officers who are in schools, there are uh, uh, colleges, there are, are, are nonprofits that will actually, they want to work with police departments to do surveys, to help them collect their data. Uh, to do their racial profiling reports, pro bono, pro bono, and, and we've got to get past this that we don't have any problems in our department because we don't get any complaints. Well, number one, could it be because people are intimidated to make report, too intimidated to make a report, or number one, people are making reports, but it's not making it to the proper channels. Because because if, if I call a, if I call to make a report. And this person on the receiving end doesn't think it's a valid 
complaint, I'm not. He's not going to take it any further. Do you have a policy that says that every time someone makes, every each any time a person wants to make a complaint, no officer will try to uh, talk them out of making that complaint, and every plaint, every complaint will be investigated, and the officer and the citizen will get an update or get a final. Um, get something in writing on about the outcome of that investigation. Are you doing that? Is you know mm-hmm. is it, you know where's your internal affairs? Is your internal affairs off site to where you have citizens who feel as if they go to one of the police stations that they're going to be intimidated and people are going to... so so are those things in place? Uh, these are things that don't cost a lot of money. These are things that you know the conversations we should be having, the overview that we should be having. That's why I believe these national standards are going to come around, and they're going to they're going to force cities to have citizen over, oversight, citizen review, or citizen oversight, and then then there's going to be another check and balances to ensure that people are doing the right thing. Where people say, "Oh man, you're putting citizens in in positions where they don't know." Well, guess what? Guess what? We're going to be put in a position where we're going to have to bring our citizens up to speed on what we're going to do because because apparently we can't do the right thing. We're not doing the right job, so now we do have to get other people, other resources to help us do the right thing. So, you know, you need to stop whining about. Oh my goodness, we're getting ready to put citizens in our business. Well, citizens pay our tax, our salaries, and citizens mm-hmm. want to know. And if you do the right thing, you won't have to have a third party coming in. But what's really wrong with a third party coming in, an oversight committee? or review committee where you sit down and talk about what you're doing and why you're doing it and, and get people yeah. to understand. So you'll have that extra pair of eyes and ears and voices out there in the community talking about, well, this is what they're doing. Oh, that's a good idea. Let me take that back to the chief. That might be something he hadn't thought about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Keith, you know, we're, we're coming up, man. We've had a, another great show, a uh, great topic with our listeners and we're coming up on a couple of minutes before the end, you know, we end this this great show. But, you know, Keith, it just goes back to something that we've heard, especially this year, is that thin blue line. Uh, and the thin blue line is something that, you know, officers are, are going to really try to hold on to. And then you've got the the blue wall of silence. And that has to be broken down because of the things that continue to occur. Uh, we don't want to see another Ferguson. We don't want to see another, uh, you know, things that happen in Minneapolis or things that happen in, in Oregon or, or you know, uh, Louisville. We have to find ways to better do our job, and we have to find uh, make sure we've got the right people in those positions to lead these agencies through the 21st century of, of community policing. But Keith, I mean, man, this has been a, a great topic. And, um, you know, I, you know, man, I've got to come up with a, with a, you know, when I hear LA say, well, you know, Chief swag and he just says Virgil and it's just like, so blah, it's just like Virgil. It's just like, Virgil Tibbs on the heat of the night, Virgil, you know. So man, I've got to come up with a with a with a suave, you know, name, man. I mean, maybe you in LA could help me out because you got the swag. I've got to have something. You gonna help me? 
LA LA's heard the name that I've given you. So yeah, no, you okay. Just, well, we just won't say well, yes. I mean, if you want me to, if you want me to share that with the listeners, no, we can. No, no. Well, you know okay. what? I'm gonna say this. I, I'm gonna take this. <laughs> hey, we want to thank everybody for listening and tuning in to you and the law, and definitely catch us on our rebroadcast shows, and definitely go to the website, the Bachelor News Radio Network dot com, and listen to us and listen to our previous aired shows. But Keith. It's been a pleasure, and, sir, we'll see you next week on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and you're listening to You and the Law. Tune in to You and the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. 